Jake Grafton walked aft through the hangar bay, picking his way around the planes and past the sailor mechanics tending them. RA-5 Vigilante Reconnaissance Planes, F-4 Phantom Fighters, A-7 Corsair and A-6 Intruder Attack Planes, a couple of helicopters, all were carefully arranged so that every square foot of space was used. Here in the hangar were performed the routine maintenance and emergency repairs that could not be done in the wind and rain of the flight deck. Here also were those planes needing spare parts that would be delivered by ship or resupply plane. The hangar bay, an impressive acre and a half of aircraft, usually held a fascination for Jake, but not today. When he reached the back of the bay, he walked through a set of open fireproof double doors into the engine repair facility. Young men wearing the enlisted's usual at-sea attire, bell-bottom jeans and faded denim shirts stained with oil, grease, and hydraulic fluid, attended to a half-dozen jet engines resting on waist-high dollies. Rags dangled from hip pockets, and wrenches and screwdrivers protruded at odd angles. Back in the States, these men must have been dressed much the same way on those long summer evenings when they tinkered with their Chevys and Fords. Jake approached the shop chief, a trim middle-aged man. Chief, do you have an old busted wrench or some scrap metal I could have? The chief petty officer took in the officer in khakis. About six feet and 175 pounds, Jake Grafton wore pilot's wings above his left breast pocket and the blue name tag of the A-6 squadron above his right. Clear gray eyes looked out past a nose that was at least one size too large for the face, and his brown hair had begun to recede from his forehead. Under one arm, the officer was carrying a wadded-up flight suit. Sure, Mr. Grafton. The chief rummaged through a metal box beside a desk stacked with forms and publications. He selected two pieces of odd-shaped rusted steel, together weighing five or six pounds, and handed them to the pilot. Thanks, chief. Jake continued on aft past the shop and stepped through an open hatch onto the fantail of the ship, a giant porch-like structure about fifteen feet above the water with the flight deck as a roof. Ordinarily, the engine mechanics used this space to bolt their jet engines to massive stands and test them before reinstalling them in the aircraft, and often the marine detachment aboard used the fantail for small arms practice, firing at cans or rags tossed into the wake. Today, though, the place was deserted. Jake unrolled the flight suit, placed the metal in one of the deep chest pockets, then zipped it closed. Dried blood, now a rusty brown, covered the right sleeve and splotched the one-piece suit. He threw the suit over the rail into the wake, a river of foam reaching toward the horizon. The green cloth floated briefly, then settled beneath the roiling surface on its long trip to the sea's floor. The cloth would last a few years before it disintegrated, but the steel would take maybe as many as a thousand years before it surrendered completely to the ageless sea. But the sea would win. That he knew. Even after the cloth had disappeared several hundred yards astern, he remained mesmerized by the water agitated in the wake of the ship's four massive screws. The water came up white with a tinge of green, ceaselessly renewing itself. Except for the steel and the bloody cloth sinking slowly into the depths, not a trace of man's passage would remain after the wake dissipated miles behind the ship. Maybe I'll end up there, he thought, trapped in a shot-up cockpit or drowned after ejecting from a plane at night. He visualized sharks. 
Attracted by the smell of blood or the thrashings of a man trying to stay afloat, the gray shapes would come out of the dark and rip a man to pieces. He imagined how it might be when the sharks tore at his flesh. He grimaced and turned away. Commander Camparelli's stateroom was two decks below the hangar deck, off a quiet passageway. Jake made sure his shirt tail was properly tucked in before he knocked and stepped inside. Camparelli sat in a chair at the desk. Lieutenant Commander Cowboy Parker, the squadron's operations officer, sat on the bunk and the executive officer, Commander Harvey Wilson, had the sofa. The top of a small refrigerator, conveniently close to the desk, made a handy place for Camparelli's file stacks. The only other furniture was a knee-high table in front of the sofa and a dresser locker recessed into one bulkhead. As the commanding officer of the A-6 squadron aboard the Shiloh, Frank Camparelli...